Good morning, church. Uh, as Laurie said, uh, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Excited to be with you all uh, today. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and, and glad that you decided to join us here this morning. Today we're going to be concluding our fall sermon series entitled Encountering Jesus. This is a series in which we have been examining uh, what are the consequences of coming in contact with the Son of God. And so this week we'll look at one final encounter uh, before we switch next week to our Advent sermon series on the songs of Christmas. I do hope that you will join us uh, starting next week as we begin our Advent celebration as a church. I'm going to invite you now, if you're able, to stand, as is our custom here, as we give reverence to God's Word. This morning we're in John chapter 17. I'll be reading verses 11 through 19. The words will be on the screen behind me. This is God's Word. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turning back, praising God with a loud voice, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Uh, the prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I believe your word is true. So we ask that you would now speak to us through your word. That you would give me, your servant, the courage to get out of the way so that you might speak to our hearts and be transformed. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I do hope that you all had a happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is tough, isn't it? I'm not talking about the holiday, although it can be tough too, but more so the act of giving thanks. I confess that I'm not very good at it. Complaining, I've got that one down, but being grateful is not one of my strong suits. What about you? Are you good at giving thanks? Would you consider yourself a particularly grateful person? I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I imagine there aren't many of us who would honestly answer yes to that question. And I hope that this doesn't come off as offensive, but I kind of feel like ungrateful is the American way. <laughs> so much prosperity compared to the rest of the world and yet we come off as so profoundly ungrateful. To riff off the prophet 
Isaiah, I feel like I can confidently say I am an ungrateful person and I dwell among ungrateful people. What's interesting, though, is that in spite of the fact that most of us can admit that we are ungrateful, and at the same time that we can realize that this is wrong, sinful even, our concern over this lack of character seems rather low. Author, theologian Jerry Bridges describes thanklessness as one of the respectable sins of our day. Meaning that thanklessness is a sin that we have culturally decided it's just not that big of a deal. But to quote the great Lee Corso, not so fast, my friend. You see, because what our text this morning reveals is that thanklessness is in fact a really big deal. It's a big deal because our thanklessness, it hinders us from enjoying one of God's greatest gifts. I love how this one commentator says it. He says, thanklessness is a soul-wilting spiritual malignancy. It's a cancer that blinds us to an amazing wonder called the mercy of God. Did you hear that? The problem with thanklessness is that it blinds us. It inhibits our ability to see that we are recipients of God's mercy. And I would argue there is no greater gift than to fully comprehend God's mercy towards you. Our text this morning is a story of God's mercy lavishly poured out on 10 very special people. And yet what we will see is that only one of the 10 was able to really see it and give thanks. And so this morning we're going to examine the mercy of God on display here in in John chapter 17 and, and see if this mercy doesn't teach us something about giving thanks. So three points this morning all centering on God's mercy. First, who's it for? Where do we find it? And what do we do with it? So God's mercy, who's it for? Where do we find it? And what do we do with it? Now, before we dive into our first question, I need to give you a little bit of context. The setting for our story is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And it's important to note here that although the disciples, they don't yet see it, Jesus is on his way to die. And on this long walk down death row, Jesus passes by this group of people. They're gathered together way off in the distance. But in spite of their distance, they recognize Jesus. And clearly, they must have heard rumors about this Jesus, about the claims that he had made about himself, about the miracles that he had performed. So they cry out to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Well, who are these people who are crying for mercy? The text says they are, verse 12, lepers, meaning they had a disease. A disease that if left untreated caused progressive and permanent disabilities. A disease that over time would cause one's hands and and feet and even parts of one's face to decay and literally fall off. It's pretty terrible, but that's not the worst of it. You see, in first first century Israel, leprosy was believed to be a punishment from God. It was a curse given to someone for their lack of faithfulness. And and so not only was the disease terrible in and of itself, but you had to spend your whole life constantly facing the shame of how horrible of a person you must be for God to give you this curse. Not only that, but in first century Israel, people believed leprosy to be highly contagious. 
Therefore, lepers were required by law to both social distance and self-identify. I feel like this text has so much more weight post-COVID. Not six feet, but a hundred paces. That was the social distancing that was required. Which is why the text says the lepers, they lifted their voices because they were required to keep a football field between them and the non-diseased world. But not just socially distanced. They had to self-identify. If someone ever accidentally entered inside that 100-pace radius, it was the leper's obligation to begin shouting at that person, unclean, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine if everywhere you went you were required to out yourself, to required to share, to, to shout out the ugliest part of your life? Liar, liar. Porn addict, porn addict, adulterer, gossip. That was the life of the leper. Totally isolated, full of shame. The worst part, first century Israel, there's no cure for leprosy. So once you got it, your life was over. Once you saw that, that first spot on your hand, Never again would you sleep with your spouse. Never again would you hug your children. Never again would you be allowed to be a part of society. You were banished for life. Now, that's the context of this story. Now, look again at the text. I want you to pay close attention to the words that the the lepers use in verse 13. We would expect them to say, heal us, Jesus. But these, these poor souls, they knew there was no cure There's no way to heal leprosy. So instead, they simply cry out for mercy. Jesus, mercy. Jesus, give us some sort of relief from this miserable life that we are living. And here's the kicker. What the lepers discover on this glorious day is that the mercy of God, it's for them too. All 10 of them, they're cured. That which they've been told all their lives is impossible. Jesus resolves in a moment. So what? Beautiful story, but what does it have to do with you and me? We see, I think this text, it teaches us a lot about who our master really is. What we see here and and throughout the gospels is that our master, he is really fond of the outcast of the loser, of the marginalized, of the disreputable. Don't forget it was Jesus who let the prostitute wash his feet with her hair, who went to dinner at the house of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who hung out with the Samaritan woman at the well, who, who intervened on behalf of the woman caught in adultery, who, who rescued the man possessed by demons, who got in trouble with the religious elite for spending too much time with tax collectors and sinners. Some of you this morning, you really need to hear that Jesus has mercy for for people like that. Because maybe, just maybe he has mercy for a sinful, disreputable, outcast loser like you. For those of you who've been told all your life, told so many times that you've started to believe it, that you're too dirty, 
that you're not worth it, you're not cool enough, you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not good enough, you're not put together enough, you're not from the right family or the right neighborhood, you're not enough. I'll tell you something, the master, he is really fond of you. And his mercy, it is for you. Maybe this story will will be the thing that gives you the courage to cry out like the lepers, Jesus, master, have mercy on me. There's more. Not only does this text reveal that God's mercy is, is for the outsider, what this text also reveals is that God's mercy is for those who we would least expect. See, verse 16 says that one of these lepers, he was a special kind of leper. He was a Samaritan leper, a double whammy, if you will. And the thing you need to know about Samaritans is that Jewish people hated them. They hated them because they were people who had assimilated, who had intermarried with with foreigners. And, And we know that Jews already weren't too keen on Gentiles, but they really despised Samaritans. Because, you know, these people, they had Jewish blood in them. And by intermarrying, they had betrayed Father Abraham, and, and therefore they were scum. And I think we're right to assume that the original audience, they would have gasped at verse 16. You mean Jesus, a Jew, had mercy on a Samaritan? How could he? Maybe a closer-to-home parallel for us would be if Jesus had come to a plantation and the antebellum south, and he's speaking to the plantation owner and, and his family, and it's the African slave in the field that overhears the message, and, and he's the one who actually gets it. And, and then Jesus turns his back on the plantation over, and he looks at the slave and says, your faith has made you well. Can you imagine the outrage? The slave owner would have revolted, because surely God's mercy, it's not for them. My question for us is who is it for you that is beyond the mercy of God? Who do you you see as, as unworthy of God's grace? See, because the truth is God's mercy is actually for them too. Church, we need to get ready because there's going to be a multitude of people in heaven that we're not planning to see there. Far more drunks and drug addicts, child molesters and adulterers, drug dealers and murderers, more gender dysphoric and same-sex attracted, far more Palestinians and Russians, so many other people from the other political party or the other side of whatever issue you think is most important. Heaven is going to be full of people like that. Because what Jesus is declaring by extending mercy to the Samaritan is that the breadth of his mercy is far greater than you or I are comfortable with. So what does that mean for us, church? For the way that we engage people outside this room? My hope is that one of the things it means is that the breadth of God's mercy, it presses us into uncomfortable relationships. Amen? Brings us to our second question. Now that we know who God's mercy is for, let's look at where we find it. Uh, This past week, I got a phone call from one of my closest friends, and he informed me that days before Thanksgiving, out of nowhere, he lost his job. I was 
dumbfounded. I could not fathom what this will mean for his family, for his four little kids. And we both acknowledge that in his field, finding another job is going to be tricky. And on the phone call, we shared lots of sadness, some tears, and tons of fear about the future. And yet in the midst of all this sadness and fear, my friend began to talk about how he is trusting that God is in this and that God is using this circumstance to grow him, to sanctify and purge him of pride and selfish ambition. He was talking about God's mercy towards him in losing his job. Man, I pray, I hope that I would respond like that if I'm ever in his shoes. Church, there's something unique about this encounter with Jesus that I don't want us to miss. More often than not, when Jesus heals someone, he does it immediately on on the spot, but not here. This healing really mirrors that of the healing of the leper Naaman in the, the Old Testament. Instead of healing these people on the spot, Jesus commands them to go and show themselves to the priest. And then the text says, as they went, they were cleansed. Did you catch the, the nuance there? It's not how Jesus always works, but what this text reveals is that sometimes we encounter God's mercy as we are walking in obedience. My friend doesn't know what's in store for him, but he's choosing to walk in obedience, trusting that he will encounter God's mercy along the way. And some of you are in that place right now. And God is asking you to walk with him And yet the leprosy, it has not gone away. Whatever difficult or painful circumstances you are facing, you are in the midst of them. And there appears to be no end in sight. And yet the invitation of our text is to continue to walk in obedience. Trusting that you will encounter God's mercy along the way. To keep walking by faith and believing that God is who he says he is and that his mercy is coming. That's not prosperity gospel. God's mercy, it will come someday. You can guarantee it because God has promised it and Jesus has secured it on the cross. But until it comes, we walk and we wait and we pray. And maybe this prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, be your guide when God's mercy is absent, may be worth memorizing. He says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The Lord, the sovereign Lord is my strength. For those of you who feel as though God's mercy is far from you, may you find the courage to go and show yourself to the priests, to continue to trust and walk with God and be on the lookout for his mercy as you go. This brings us to our third and final question. What do we do when we experience the mercy of God? What is our response? What should our response be? And the answer from the text is pretty obvious. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to discern that when someone shows you mercy, the appropriate response is to say thank you. And yet what we see here is that out of the ten who receive mercy, only one gets it. 
Only one returns to give thanks. How can this be? We've already talked about how horrible it is to be a leper. And, and how could these nine, how could they be so ungrateful? And yet, like most scriptures, we should be careful to judge before we have taken a long look in the mirror. You see, although you and I have not been healed from some terrible skin disease, if you are a follower of Christ, you have experienced exponentially more of God's mercy than these 10 lepers. See, you and I, our condition was so much worse than this physical disease of leprosy. As one commentator says, we were not diseased, we were dead. And don't forget that this, this encounter with the lepers, it was just a pit stop on the way to Jesus' ultimate act of mercy. The act of mercy that cost Jesus his life, the act of mercy that made a way for you and me to have life. But how often do we give thanks for that mercy? Church, the truth, the truth is God has been so good to us, so good to you. His mercy and kindness, they abound. There's no greater love than this, than the fact that Jesus laid down his life for you, his friend. While we were yet sinners, totally undeserving, Christ died for us. And if we really saw it, if we saw the magnitude of God's mercy towards us, then our life would be a constant outpouring of gratitude to him. But the truth is that thankfulness is not something that we can just decide to embrace. It's, it's, there's no profound enough sermon that would produce a thankful church. But rather thankfulness, like many of the other virtues that we talk about here at Christ Central, it's a discipline. Meaning that it's not natural, it's not intuitive, it does not passively make its way into our lives. It has to be cultivated Fostered. It has to be kneaded into us like, like yeast into dough. This is why God gives us the Psalms. They're like training wheels for, for thankfulness. They teach us how and why to give thanks. So we should be in the Psalms, church, but I'm going to get even more practical today. And in this past week, as I've just looked at my own heart and seen how truly ungrateful I am, I decided to pick up a new practice. So this is something that was recommended to me. I'm going to recommend it to you. Each morning this week, I've put 10 coins in my left pocket. And throughout the day, when I find something to be thankful for, I take a coin out of my left pocket and I put it in my right pocket. My goal is to move all 10 to the right pocket by the end of the day. I've got five in my right pocket right now. It's a pretty good day so far. Pretty simple. But I have been amazed at how this simple practice is starting to cultivate in me more of a thankful heart. And in turn, a greater awareness of eyes to see, if you will, God's mercy in my life. My, my kids have even kind of started to get into it. My littlest doesn't really understand. She keeps telling me to move coins for things that she's thankful for, but I'm not going to complain about that. The truth is, church, we have so much to be thankful for. God's mercy is new every morning, and his faithfulness is great beyond measure. Therefore, we, we must grow in giving thanks. I never met someone who embodied gratitude more than my grandmother. Her life was, was pretty tough. She lost her husband to a heart attack in her early 30s, left to raise her 
three small children by herself. And not long after that, she discovered that she had cancer, a type of cancer that could be removed but comes back 99% of the time. She battled that cancer for years until the chemo began to impact her heart. And then from then on, she battled heart problems and cancer. My grandmother lived in the hospital. I probably have as many memories of visiting her in the hospital as I do visiting her in her home. And yet she never complained. I cannot remember her ever complaining. My aunt tells the story of when the doctors one day were trying to find a vein and they accidentally punctured her lung They had to rush her to the operating room to drain her lungs. And afterwards, the doctors were explaining what happened. And my grandmother begins to apologize to the doctor for having such difficult veins. The memory that I most treasure, though, was my grandmother's love of hymns. And and her favorite of all was the hymn, Give Thanks. If anyone had a reason not to give thanks, it it was her. But she loved to sing these words. And and she lived these words out every day. It's give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ. And now let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks. See, I'm pretty sure she sang that hymn so that it would be more and more true of her her heart. In spite of such a painful and hard journey, my grandmother developed the discipline of giving thanks. And as a result, she was able to see fully the mercy of God. And and because of that, she lived a life marked with gratitude and joy. Church, may we strive to do the same, to work the discipline of giving thanks into our lives. And in so doing, may we be overwhelmed by the mercy of God towards us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're not good at gratitude. We're not good at giving thanks. We don't see it. We don't see your mercy clearly. And so we, we, we miss out on the riches that are offered to us. Father, help us to grow in this virtue. Lord, help us to develop the discipline of gratitude. And as we do, Father, would you overwhelm us by the mercy that you so lavishly pour out on us, your children. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.